Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, it says, Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname is Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. We begin our little brief biography of these 12. Several months back, I had the privilege of going to Quantico in Virginia. Part of my education and ongoing training with multiple law enforcement offices and with the Bureau involves sometimes doing some special training. And many of you are familiar that they have a unit there that provides profiles for individuals. And the profiles are based on limited information. And so the challenge is to take what limited information that you have in order to draw a portrait or a profile, if you will, and then begin to draw conclusions about how to go forward with individuals. That's exactly what we're going to do here this morning. From the limited information that we have, we're going to draw from the scriptures primarily, from church traditions secondarily, but it will also involve hopefully only mild speculation. Obviously, the only thing that we can know for certain is what the scriptures tell us and what Jesus has to say about these men that he called to be his companions, the apostles. And during the training of the 12, there's an overarching group think that begins to emerge. As you look at them collectively, you see a universal lack of faith among his disciples, mutual jealousy among his disciples, helplessness among his disciples in the face of challenge. Now, what's interesting about all of that is that Jesus has already still called them, chosen them, equipping them, empowering them, and is going to use them. This should be unbelievable to you because what it should automatically speak that in spite of failure or setbacks or difficulties, Jesus is looking for a reason to stick with you, not abandon you in the process. I think that that's powerful. So in brief, let's consider them collectively again, just for a moment. Simon, Peter, and Andrew are brothers. According to the scripture, they're the sons of Jonas or some translations have John in John chapter 1, verse 43, and chapter 21, verse 15. James and John are called the sons of Zebedee and Salome, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Matthew, who was originally called Levi or Levi, was the son of Alphaeus. We learn that in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. But we also discover that James the less is also called the son of Alphaeus in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. And if so, if one's father and the other one's father has the same name, is it inappropriate for us to think that they also might be brothers? And so, again, you see that in this band of followers, you have three sets of two brothers. 
We know that Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, all lived in Bethsaida. We discover that in Mark chapter 1, verse 16, John chapter 1, verse 44. The first four lived in Capernaum. Or actually, they would later live in Capernaum in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, which has caused no end of consternation for some people because they go, hey, wait a minute. In one place, it says they lived in Bethsaida. In another place, they lived in Capernaum. Is this some sort of contradiction? And the answer is no. They lived in Bethsaida, and they moved to Capernaum. Most people in this room aren't Colorado natives. By the way, just for fun, how many of you are Colorado natives? Look at all of those natives. Who isn't a Colorado native? Look at all those people who came here. Now, again, if someone said to you, are you from Colorado, would it be appropriate for all of you to say yes? But some of you came from somewhere else. And so that becomes the challenge too as you're looking at the Bible and you're reading it and you're asking yourself the question, is there more to the story? John would later live in Jerusalem and then even later move to Ephesus according to Acts chapter 3 verse 1 and chapter 15 and Galatians chapter 2. And according to church tradition, John the apostle is entrusted with the care and custody, if you will, the oversight and, and ministry of Mary, Jesus' mother. According to church tradition, both John the apostle and Mary will finally go to Ephesus where Mary will die first and John will die later. We all know that according to the Bible, Peter... Andrew, James, John are fishermen in Mark chapter 1 verse 16. We also know that Matthew is a tax collector. But what you may not know is that the occupations of the rest of the apostles are not revealed. There would be good reason to believe that they are not only related, some of them to each other, but even some might be related to Jesus. Some Bible scholars suggest that James and John are cousins of Jesus. That is, if Salome, the wife of Zebedee, is the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make them first cousins. And again, one of the things we should carefully consider in their dramatic journey isn't simply the place where they were called, but the journey that they're going to take and their end of their lives. Just like some of you, as you think back on your life, that who you are at the very beginning of your life and who you are in the middle of your life and who you are at the end of your life hopefully is going to be marked by growth, maturity, stability. And so one of the questions that we might ask, even when we ask the question, why did Jesus call them? We already know in part the answer, that Jesus has a plan for them, that they're each going to be witnesses of his life, of his message, of his miracles, of his resurrection, that these are the people that Jesus will draw near to himself, but who are also going to play an important role in the 
birth of the church and the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. So we begin our little profile of Simon, Peter, who I'm going to say is first in failure, but also in faith. Now imagine Jesus places a help wanted ad in the ancient version of Craigslist. He says, wanted, apostle, must be outspoken, hot-hearted, must have a foot-shaped mouth, must be ambivalent, wishy-washy, inconsistent, self-centered, signed Jesus of Nazareth. Only the serious need apply. As you can imagine, most people aren't going to respond to that kind of an ad. And so we discover, again, none of them fill out a job application. None of them petition Jesus for the job. He prays. He calls them. They respond. We love to poke fun at Peter. Peter's always first on the list. And Judas is always last on the list. And the Lord seems to sometimes have leaders among leaders. The Bible gives us a great deal of information about Peter. We know that he was a fisherman. We know that he was originally from Bethsaida, but moved to Capernaum. We know that he was married. We know that his father's name was Jonas. Of the original 12 apostles, only three would write inspired New Testament documents. That is, of course, from our list. We're talking about Matthew, who will write the Gospel of Matthew. John, who will write the Gospel of John, and also the epistles of John, and the book of Revelation. And of course, Peter. Peter will be instrumental in speaking to Mark about Mark's gospel, but also the first two epistles of first and second Peter. And I'm going to suggest to you that Peter's epistles are in part a fulfillment of Christ's commands to Peter. You'll remember he has the terrible, tragic situation where he denies the Lord. And after that denial and after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus is going to restore him. And as he restores him, he says to him, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. Those epistles will in fact be a part of the fulfillment of that command because it will provide spiritual food in every generation. Peter's name appears 210 times in the New Testament. The reason why I bring that up is because Paul's name will appear 162 times, but the names of the remaining apostles all together collectively will be 142 times. It puts things in perspective how the Bible and the Holy Spirit will emphasize certain characters. Some Bible scholars speak of Peter as the apostle of hope. And I think that that's right because in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he speaks of hope in chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, 21, chapter 3, verse 15. There is this reoccurring theme that Peter will talk about concerning hope. Some Bible teachers think of Paul as the apostle of faith. And John, the apostle of love. And I think all of that becomes important because when you think about the instructions that are given to us and the writing that's made, there's equal emphasis on faith and hope 
and love, which is going to be an important part of what it means to be a Christian. One of the key words that Peter will use over and over and over again in his epistles is the word suffering, or its equivalent, some 16 times. Peter's parents name him Shimon, in English, Simeon. What's interesting to me about his name is in the Hebrew language, Shimon means listen. I think it might be wishful thinking on the part of his mom and dad. Look, if we call him Shimon, do you think maybe he'll pay attention to what we're saying? Have you ever named your child in the hopes that they would reflect the character or the comment of the name that you've given to them? And of course, that's going to be a problem. Because Peter in the New Testament narratives speaks more than everyone else except for Jesus himself, which I find interesting. It would appear that the Holy Spirit gives us a picture of a man fairly hot-tempered, fairly impetuous, fairly stubborn, with moments of revelation and moments of retaliation. No wonder we love him so much. No other disciple is rebuked as much as Peter. No other disciple attempts to rebuke the Lord. The Lord corrects Peter more than any other apostle. No other apostle so boldly confesses Jesus. And no other apostle so miserably denies him. No other disciple is praised as much as Jesus praises Peter. But you've got to also remember he's the only one called Satan by Jesus. If you don't count that unfortunate dark moment where Jesus makes reference to Judas as the son of perdition. So when was Peter called Satan? He was called Satan when he attempted to persuade Jesus to turn away from the cross, to turn away from the journey that he must make to Jerusalem in order to die for sin. Because you see, that was a part of, of God's plan. And we have this contrast then. We have Peter given a revelation of God's will. And then we have a picture of Jesus resisting God's will. And the reason why this becomes so important for you and for me is because sometimes that's a picture of us. Where we begin to know what God's plan and God's purposes are. We open up our Bible and we read God's plan for our life. We read a hope of a healthy marriage and, and, a, and a decent family and, and, and a provision that's made. But most of all, for the problem of our sin and the solution to the problem of our sin, salvation in Christ. This is why we think of Peter as first in faith and failure. But for all of his faults, Peter has a lot of great qualities. You see, if you read the New Testament, one of the things that you're going to find out about Peter is that he's always asking questions, lots of questions. And some of those questions may at first seem superficial or even immature. But I want you to understand what's going on even in the questioning. I'm going to suggest to you the reason why he questions is because he really does care about God. And he really does care about 
the Lord and, and about Jesus. He cares about the work of Jesus and the, and the work that Jesus is seeking to accomplish. And by the way, if you want to be a leader, that's something that you have to be able to do. You have to be able to ask questions. You must have an opinion about things. Granted, our opinions aren't always going to be correct. When the other disciples didn't know something or, or when they didn't understand something, many times we find in the New Testament they keep their mouth shut. But not Peter. Not Peter. Peter's going to open up his mouth. Most kept their doubts and their questions to themselves. Not Peter. And by the way, that might be you. You might be a person who isn't good with keeping your doubt or your questions to yourself. You want to know answers. When Jesus made the comment in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you, but it's what comes out of your mouth that defiles you. Jesus in that context is speaking to the religious leaders and the disciples said to him, Rabbi, don't you realize that when you said that, the Pharisees were deeply offended when they heard that saying? Because Jesus was challenging them. Jesus said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. If the blind leads the blind, then both will fall into a ditch. Peter asks Jesus in light of that to explain that, to explain the parable in chapter 15, verse 15. And in Matthew chapter 15, verses 16 through 20, Jesus winds up basically saying, Peter, Peter, don't you understand what I'm trying to say? And Peter will basically respond with, what is our reward for leaving everything and following you? Peter is the one who's going to ask about the withered fig tree. Peter, and again, remember, it's revealed that Peter would experience a martyr's death for his faith in Jesus. It was Peter who basically in John chapter 21, verse 21, when he's asking the question, when Jesus reveals to him what's going to happen to him, Jesus basically says, He gives him an answer about what's going to happen to him. And then Peter asks Jesus, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus basically says, that's none of your business. You need to worry about you. Why is all of this important? He asks questions. He cares. He shows initiative. He was not only the first to ask questions, but also he's the first to offer answers. How Clearly his answers aren't always correct, but he's willing to offer them. Why is, again, any of this important? Because it becomes some of the ingredients of leadership. When Jesus asked the question, who do men say that I am? Peter replied, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And this was more than just going first. It wasn't just simply opening your mouth. The Lord himself responds to Peter's comment that it was insight and revelation. Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven, unquote, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. Again, why is that important? 
because God was revealing to Peter the identity of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, howbeit in an incomplete fashion. And when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter is the first to draw his sword. True, the last miracle that Jesus ever performs is to undo the damage of a misguided disciple. But I think everyone cheered, at least I did, when Peter cut off his ear because he was standing up. No one can fault Peter for refusing to get involved. When they had their staff meeting, Jesus never had to say, who wants to get involved? They didn't have to worry about that. Peter's going to participate. He's not a spectator. With Peter, it's all or nothing. It's burning fire or forget about it. Peter had a tough time learning lessons. And again, this should cause, I'm hoping, at least a little bit of hope to spring up inside of each of your hearts if you're wondering if you have a tough time learning lessons. Have you ever asked the question, God, why do you keep visiting the same issues with me over and over and over again? And even though it might be problematic, even though it might be difficult, isn't it great to know that God is at work? People in leadership sometimes have a tendency to be bossy, domineering, aggressive. And when you're bossy, domineering, and aggressive, the Lord will find ways to humble you so that you learn submission. And it was true of Peter as well. When the tax collectors in Capernaum demanded a, a tax payment, Jesus commanded Peter to go catch a fish. Peter went out and found the exact change in the fish's mouth. Peter learned a lesson about submitting to the government and to Jesus. In the first letter, Peter would later write, he would write these words, submit yourselves to the, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether to kings as one in authority or to governors as seen by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, honor all men, love the brothers, fear God, Honor the king, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 and 15, and then again in verse 17. He doesn't just simply write that out of the clear blue sky. It's something that he himself would have to learn. He would have to learn self-control. He would have to learn self-restraint. And he would have to learn humility and love. When the temple guards and the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, maybe more than a hundred guards, Peter pulls his sword and Jesus basically says, put away your sword and let God's plan come to pass. 
in a very real sense, that is what has to happen sometimes in each and every one of our lives. We think, we think we know what God's want. We think we know God's plan. We think that we know God's purpose. We don't understand what's happening in our life. We don't understand what's happening in our marriage. We don't necessarily understand what's happening in the popular culture. We see all of this pain. We see all of this heartache. We see all of this difficulty. And we don't exactly know when to intervene and when to let it go. And guess what? The right answer to that question will sometimes come only after a lifetime of ministry and service and submission to the Lord as you pray and you plead with God, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to respond? What's going to be in the best interests of you and the kingdom as I go forward? Peter needed to learn humility. And a few hours before Jesus' death, he claimed complete loyalty. He proudly boasted that he would never forsake Jesus and he would never, ever fall away. And he had to learn a hard lesson. Years later, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God is opposed to the proud. I wonder if he first wrote Peter and then he just crossed it out and he goes, no, that's a little too much information. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Peter needed to learn about sacrifice. And Jesus promised him that he would. In John 21, 18, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, that when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked wherever you wished. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't wish or where you don't want to go. It says, Thus he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. And that's exactly what Peter will do. He'll walk into the future in humility and submission and love, but he has to learn humility and he has to learn submission and he has to learn love. And by the way, it wasn't fear that caused Jesus, Peter to deny Jesus. It was a lack of love. Do you know how we know? Because when Jesus goes to restore Peter, he doesn't say, Peter, are you still scared? He says, Peter... Do you love me? And Peter says, I'm really fond of you. Just feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? I'm very fond of you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything about everything. You know that I love you. In the restoration process, sometimes the restoration process is as deeply traumatizing as the event that causes the separation. Later, when Peter is arrested and he appears before the Sanhedrin, he'll boldly preach Christ. But his confidence isn't in himself. It is in the message, and it is also in the person that he's proclaiming. He learned his lesson slowly, but he did learn it. 
Now again, this should cause each and every one of you who sometimes finds himself or herself learning lessons ever so slow to be filled with hope. The bishop Eusebius reports his cruel death. Eusebius was the pastor of Calvary Chapel at Caesarea. He was the pastor of the church at Caesarea. This is about the third century between 350 and 380 AD. And according to church tradition, Eusebius writes concerning Peter's death. Many of you know that Peter was married. And he and his wife would both be killed. According to Eusebius, Peter stood at the foot of his wife's cross because God was going to bring him into a place where he is going to witness suffering and he's going to provide support. And according to Eusebius, he kept repeating to her as he held her feet, as she was nailed to the cross, he kept repeating to her over and over again, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And the cruel Romans made him witness his own wife's death. And after she died, it said that he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. Perhaps his life can be summed up in the last words that he ever wrote in his second epistle. In chapter 3, verse 18, he wrote, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. First, in failure, yes. But God has a plan for him. He's going to be the first to preach in such a way that literally thousands of people are going to be saved. And Andrew, what do we know about him? Well, we know that he was Peter's younger brother. We meet Andrew in John's gospel in the first chapter. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, both John the apostle and Andrew seem to be young followers of John the Baptist. Most scholars speculate, given John's age and his death, that he may have been as young as 13 years old or 14 years old when he starts to to follow Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 35, it says, again the next day, John, this is the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples. We're going to learn that those two disciples are John and Andrew They hear the Baptist preach, looking at Jesus in verse 36, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 37, the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned around, seeing them following, said to them, What is it that you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say translated teacher, where are you staying? Then he said, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour, which is either 10 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But whatever it means, it means that they spent time with Jesus. And then it says one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. 
Simon Peter's brother. And it says he first went out and he found his brother and he began to share with him that they found the Messiah. Throughout the New Testament, we see Andrew bringing people to Jesus. By the way, we have no record of any book that he ever wrote, no sermon that he ever preached. There are no words that he speak in the New Testament. So what can we glean from this limited amount of information? You know what I think is the most important thing? Andrew is willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. Andrew would lead his brother to Jesus. And it may be that Andrew would never do great things for God as the world measures success or greatness. But the first person Andrew leads to the Lord will go on and provide one of the most powerful testimonies and preaching ministries in the history of the world. Most people have never heard of a guy named Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham had a series of messages and he gave a series of speeches and preaching ministry in, in North Carolina. And in the last session, there was a young man who was there who heard him preach. And in the fourth day of the last series, a young man marched forward and gave his life to Christ. His name was Billy Graham. And Billy Graham perhaps preached to more people than any human being who has ever lived. D.L. Moody was led to the Lord by an unassuming shoe salesman. His name was Edward Kimball. He loved the Lord. And he would go out and he would find young men and he would bring them to church and he would tell them about Jesus. He would tell them that their sins could be forgiven and they could have a right relationship with God. And D.L. Moody accepted Christ through the ministry of Edward Kimball and became one of the most impacting people in all of history. You know, I've had the privilege of speaking literally to millions of people over the last 40 years. Preached, taught, ministered. But maybe the most important conversation I ever had in my entire life, I was saved for only two weeks. I got saved when I was 16. Two weeks later, I turned 17. And my best friend would come over to my house. He was dating my sister and I would tell him about Jesus. I would tell him that you could have a right relationship with God and Christ. I would share Christ with him and he would get so angry. My friend is about six foot five and he came into my room and one day when I was sharing Christ with him, he just literally picked me up by the lapel and he pushed me against the wall and he would say, shut up, stop talking to me about Jesus. You're not even a good Catholic. And I said to him, Skip, what do you want me to do? Lie to you? God can change your life. He can save you. He can forgive your sin. If you'll receive him as your savior, your life can be different. And by the way, in the 1980s, Skip Heitz became the pastor of the fastest growing church in America. And his church now numbers in excess of 17,000 people. His, his church is one of the 10 largest churches in America. I may never do great things for God. 
You may never do great things for God. You may never be on the radio. You may never have a television show. You may never write a book, but you never know that the next person that you meet, the child that you're training, the person that you love, that you care about, as you invest your life in them, it could very well be that they're the one who's going to change the world. Andrew's willing to be number two in order for Jesus to be number one. And when we find him in the Bible, we see number one, he's a disciple of John the Baptist, which seems to mean that he learns discipline and dedication. We also know that this is the guy, Andrew, who is going to, when Jesus has multitudes who are following him and the disciples come and say, you need to send them away. They don't have anything to eat. And Jesus says, you feed them. And most of the disciples say, we don't have anything. But Andrew goes and he finds a lad and he brings him to Jesus. Later in the New Testament, when Greek-speaking Gentiles who have made a conversion to Judaism, they want an audience with Jesus, Andrew brings them to Jesus. Over and over again, we see Andrew bringing people to Jesus. Andrew's present when Jesus speaks about the times and the seasons of a future judgment. The last mention of Andrew individually is in the upper room, along with the other apostles, as they're in one accord in prayer and supplication in Acts chapter 1, verse 13. After being filled with the Holy Spirit, we're given no more information about Andrew, either in the book of Acts but there are reliable sources where we learn a little bit about his ministry and about his death. But for now, we're going to leave him where the sacred text leaves him. And what do we know about James? It says he first called Simon Peter and Andrew his brother and James the son of Zebedee. Well, here's what we know. We know that he is the brother of John, who is later going to write the gospel of John. And the inner circle seems to be Peter, James, and John. When we see Jesus in the significant portions of his ministry, there is this inner circle that he invites people into in order to witness the most important parts of his ministry. By the way, the last mention of him is in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 where it says Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the people in the church. They killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Why is that important? Because 17 years after this calling, James will be the first to die. He is the first in zeal and passion but he's also the first to die. One, one reference that we have in the New Testament is Jesus gives both he and John a nickname, the sons of thunder. You might recall the circumstance. They're preaching the gospel and one particular village refuses to hear it. And James and John say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and smoke them like a cheap cigar? And Jesus goes, are you, do you have any idea what you're saying? What kind of group would do that? <laughs> Scholars wonder 
what are we to draw from this conclusion? And by the way, one Bible scholar pictures James more like a silhouette than a portrait. Why? Because all we have is this dark outline, but we don't have very much of the details. His name is a transliteration of the Hebrew Yaakov. His name is Jacob. And when the gospel spread, his name was translated Jacobus, Iago in Spain, Jacques in France. And when you make your way into the 8th, 9th, and 10th century into England, his name is translated James. And in the 12th century, the derivative is used much to describe the rulers. Oddly enough, the crowning of James Stuart is, as the first king of both England and Scotland increased the name tremendously, but then it fell out of fashion. And James became a name <clears throat> that was used among the English to describe a manservant. So if you've ever heard someone say, home, James, that's where it comes from. But I digress. Back to the text. Okay. James lives in the Galilee. His father is Zebedee. His mother is Salome. Again, scholars suggest Salome is related to Mary as the mother of Jesus. If that's the case, then Aunt Salome comes in the New Testament and makes a request of Jesus that James and John, her children, sit at the right hand and the left hand of the future kingdom where Jesus is the Lord. Oddly enough, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. He basically just simply says... Are they willing to go where I'm going? And are they willing to do what I'm doing? And are they willing to drink from the same cup that I'm willing? And remember what both James and John said. We are. But they had no idea what the future held for them. They had no idea. They want position. But Jesus is going to have something way different. And by the way... Salome is described in the New Testament with a lot of admirable qualities. She's deeply loyal, supportive. She's one of the ladies who supports Jesus in his ongoing ministry. And as for Zebedee, he appears only in the narrative when his sons leave him to follow Jesus. We don't know anything. We don't know whether he shared his wife's faith or his son's faith. James was a fisherman like his father. It was the custom of people in that world to follow your father in trade. There seems to be further evidence that they had a home in Jerusalem and that they had men servants. And so they might have been reasonably well off. And according to John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16, Caiaphas and Zebedee are familiar with each other and know each other. We see a picture of both James and John when they, they are called by Jesus mending nets. And I think this becomes a picture. It's a symbolic picture. Both James and John are going to live a life of restoration. Remember, a net becomes a type and a picture of evangelism and, and catching um, fish. And the mending of the net is the mending of the instrument that's used to bring provision. And James and John do exactly like that. They're in the business of taking broken things and, and mending them together. Jesus calls James and James appears again after the resurrection. And maybe a hundred years ago, there was an author named Frederick um, Edwards who wrote these words in his introduction on James. He said, quote, 17 years passed between the call 
when James received from the master and the martyrdom he suffered for him. The history we have of him is tolerably complete for three of those years, though it is silent or nearly so, respecting the other 14. He is the first of those whose histories we've studied, about whose life we have no need to speculate, and to whom we can do ample justice by simply following the written record, unquote. And what is that record? The record is his discipleship begins when Jesus sees he and his brother mending the nets, Mark chapter 4. The gospels are silent about his conversion. The gospels give him the nickname Son of Thunder. Now again, I'm interested in that because of my dad. My dad hung out with people who had all kinds of strange nicknames. Like I'd go, Dad, why do your friends have all these funny names? What do you mean, why do my friends have funny names? Yeah, why is that guy called Fat Tony Bones? Just look at him, look, look at him. Well, why do you call that guy CC? Because he drinks Canadian Club like a fish. Oh, why do you call this guy this guy? Again, I'm going to suggest to you that passion, zeal is on his face and in his heart. And by the way, when Herod wants them dead, he picks Peter and James to imprison. And you know why I think that's important? Because when you're afraid of what God is doing, you try to focus on the one who's doing the most damage. And I'm going to suggest to you that that might have been James. James lived near to Jesus. James is always near Jesus when we see him at the transfiguration, when we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when Herod wants him dead... He is going to sacrifice James. Daniel McLean offers this insight, and I think it's really important. He says, quote, The blood of James consecrated the cause of divine truth so that his death marks an epoch of increased energy and an enlarged area of operation. Herod I resolved to slaughter the innocents. Herod II beheaded John the Baptist. Herod III executes James. Yet at every stage, the attempt to crush the cause of God fails miserably and the stain of blood upon the house of Herod is prophetic in the ultimate issue of the conflict between brute force and earnest faith, unquote. And the reason why I think this is important, I had Scott Thunder on my radio program late last week and we were talking about the incredible pain and suffering that saints are experiencing in North Korea, in India, in China, and again, how the blood of the saints serve as the seed of the church. You would think that Satan would have learned his lesson. But when people are getting their heads cut off in North Africa, when, children, when, when, when saints are being crucified in the Middle East, we have to understand something. Not only is Satan attacking, but God is at work. James becomes greater in death than even in life. He's first in zeal, but he's also the first to be sacrificed. And what is our lesson? Well, I think that our lesson is, in part, James would have us follow Jesus passionately, zealously, because zeal and passion are going to be the ingredients that are going to be necessary for sacrifice. 
John MacArthur rightly writes, quote, James wanted a crown of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a place of prominence. Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. He wanted to rule. Jesus gave him a sword, not to wield, but to be the instrument of his own execution. Fourteen years after this, James would become the first of the twelve to be killed for his faith. What does that mean for you? You may start off life with failure. And even your walk with Jesus. But failure can quickly become faith. And failure and faith are going to be the necessary ingredients in order to have a proper understanding of suffering. Humility and energy can motivate us to bring other people to Jesus. And passion and zeal can provide the necessary ingredients for us to begin to understand the most basic meaning of sacrifice. This window that we're given into Peter, into Andrew, into James is meant to help us understand that when Jesus begins with you, he's also going to make a commitment to change you from failure to faith, from pride to humility, from selfishness to sacrifice. And these are only the first three guys We've got nine more to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as you give us a window into the hearts and lives and sacrifice of these men, that you would give us a window into our own heart and our own circumstances, into our own character. Lord, we know that sometimes... Our beginning doesn't always reveal our end. Lord, we know that Jesus is in the business of shaping his followers, not for our greatness, but for his greatness. Failure is so often near faith. And so, Lord, we pray that we would not be afraid or allow our failure to define us but to motivate us to walk forward in faith and confidence in Jesus. Lord, we pray that like Andrew, we would be willing to be number two if that means that Jesus gets first place. And Lord, we pray that our passion and zeal would prepare us for humility and sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.